Dwayne Bacon with the trigger. 3.1 to go. Hornets down by two. Bacon, Bacon gets it into Lamb. Lamb had the ball knocked away by Siakam. Pushes it out near center. On the bounce to Jeremy Lamb. It's poked away. A heave. It's gone! He hit it! He hit it! It's gone! He banks it at midcourt! And the Hornets win it! A wild heave at the buzzer. Off glass and in from the other side of center court. Your Hornets knocked off the Raptors at the horn! Are you kidding me? A finish you will never see in the NBA! Could have guarded three ball all night. That was, that was the capper. Gosh, Quarter, they too bad, too, because hey, Pascal got his hands on it and knocked it away. And, and uh, I thought the clock was going to run out, actually. Jeremy Lamb with the heave from 48 feet. It goes, and the Charlotte Hornets win at the buzzer, 115-114. An incredible shot and finish to this ball game. Jeremy Lamb with the half-court heave, which is actually the second longest buzzer beater in the last 48 years. Somehow the Raptors shoot 58% from the floor and lose to the Hornets. We'll break down all all of the coverage in terms of the Raptors and where they go from here with Rachel Brady later in the show, even touch on some youth sports basketball, which is one of the many things she covers. First of all, we have to cover the NCAA tournament. I'm doing that with my guy, Tyler Ennison. Tyler, you're killing me. I trusted you with cues. Amen. I took your advice. <laughs> I had them winning multiple games. <laughs> And I'm getting no points from the orange. How hard was that for you to watch? It was tough, honestly. Like I said last time, it was I was pretty surprised on the the seed that we got going into the tournament, just because I didn't think we were honestly I didn't think we were that good. But uh, now was, you say that? No, I, I I honestly, you know, we had some good wins, but we also had some really terrible losses. So I wasn't expecting a final four run, but I just think with in the tournament, there's been years where I'm like, all right, we suck this year, and they make it to the final four or whatever, and. I wouldn't put money on it, but you know I had faith in them. At this time, you're you're betting on the zone more so even than cues because so right. many teams see a zone throughout the regular season or see one at least with that size and length, right. both on the perimeter and in the inside, and it's just a a bet. How often can you expect teams to figure it out? Number one, and then constantly knock down shots right. to make it worthwhile to get out of it, even though. Beheim's not getting out of it regardless. We saw a little bit of zone and a crazy finish with Duke and UCF. As a competitor, I wanted Duke to lose because I wanted everyone's bracket to be busted. <laughs> but I also was happy to see RJ get the put back, get a big bucket. What do you imagine that scene would have been like on both ends of the court? Duke guys surviving to play another game and then UCF like that was their moment to shine and right. just kind of literally had it at the basket and couldn't finish it. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. Honestly. That's what makes the tournament, you know, so entertaining why so much people pay attention to it. Just because you have situations like that. Duke's the number one overall seed and, you know, I don't think anybody had UCF coming in and being Duke. So, you know, just a game like that in the only the, what is it, the second round, March Madness, you know, in itself. And then that with the upsets and everything. So, you know, I think a lot of people have Duke winning it, which is still possible. But a, a team like USCF who um, nobody really expected to come in and, you know, take down the big Duke is uh, is what makes it interesting. And that's why, you know, everybody watches, even if you're not a college basketball fan. I think people are still filling out brackets, you know, whether you're, you know, avid watcher basketball or not. 
they had a chance to go up six at the end of the game. Alley-oop kind of gets fumbled, come back down, give up a bucket. I felt for those kids, especially Taco Fall, who played so well and then fouled out and wasn't even in the game at the end to try and make his seven foot six presence felt. I felt for the kids at UCF because literally this was this was their chance to shine. Right. I mean, Dawkins will get some NBA love. Taco Fall obviously will get some NBA loves. But the rest of the kids on that team, we're literally never gonna hear from them again. I rate Coach K. Because he spoke highly of Dawkins, who who has come through Duke's program, and so he was kind of repping the brotherhood, as as Duke dudes would say. But in the handshake line, he was literally like hugging and consoling some crying UCF guys. Maybe I'm getting soft because normally mm-hmm. when I see guys crying, I'm like, go back to the locker room and cry. <laughs> but I do rate Coach K for in that moment recognizing that UCF probably should have won the game, and those kids were heartbroken. Right. I think. What I respect about Coach K is that, you know, he's been around forever, but I feel like he's adjusting to, you know, the times and how it's changing. And, you know, with me kind of paying attention to the USA basketball stuff and interviews, I think that's what drew a lot of the superstars in the NBA to enjoy playing for him just because he was, he's an older guy and he's been around the block and he is kind of changing his ways and adjusting. And Duke has had JJ Redick and Jay Williams who stayed three, four years. And within the past, what, four or five years, they had all one and done, you know, from Jabari to, you know, Tatum to Ingram. And he realizes that it's not the norm for guys to stay four years anymore. You know, you're better off, you know, if you're Duke being able to get the Zion and RJ because you're Duke and, you know, kind of rolling with the punches. And I, I respect him for that just because it's easy to, as an older guy, you know, probably one of the greatest coaches to ever coach a basketball team to, you know, kind of be stuck in your ways. And it's, you know, kind of my way or the highway, but you know, you see him adjusting and you see him, you know, wearing sneakers and kind of, you know, um, doing what he can to, to stay as young as he can. And he already has the respect on the court. So I, I, I have a, a newfound respect for Coach K as I grew up and went through the whole recruiting process and whatnot. But, you know, as a, a Q's guy, it's still tough to say that out loud. Yeah, I mean, before it was easy to hate Duke because they had all the guys who, whether it's Battier or Trajan Langdon or three, four-year guys. Right. And if you left early, it was like you were you were almost looked at with side-eye from their program. Like, what, William Avery or Maggetti or Brand? You guys think you're better than right. Duke basketball? Our guys stick around. And then around your era, he kind of had to get hip to the game. And right, be like, exactly. If Syracuse is recruiting one-and-done guys, if Carolina is... We know Kentucky is going to exclusively. Right. We have to be a bit more flexible. And that's when you got the Jabari's and the Okafor's and the Kyrie's. What do the actual Duke dudes in the league, because they have almost the most, what do they say and feel about Coach K? I'm pretty close with Jabari Parker, who, you know, just from hearing from him, you know, they have a, a personal relationship and it's not just on the court. And you see a lot of coaches, you know, it's easy. You're only with these guys from one to four years and it's easy to coach them and kind of, move on to the next group but it seems from the outside looking in that coach k really invests his time and really builds a relationship with these guys to where you know you see guys going back for whatever the duke pro day and guys going back and it's not like duke is in the middle of new york city or in the middle of la where guys are just kind of running into it like ucla you know i feel like you have to really go back especially if you're not from north carolina to duke and you know you see a lot of guys doing that 
you know, as much as they, you know, the brotherhood thing gets annoying, you know, from the outside looking in, it, it really seems like they do have a um, a close connection and kind of a group where they stick together. Once you go to Duke, you're you're kind of in that, you know, select group. I'll make an exception this year because RJ's there, and I actually really like Zion, but after this year, it's it's a wrap. <laughs> but Duke once again, like forget. <laughs> well, gonna touch on some more NCAA tournament. So if that's why you're listening, stick around. But for the, the most part, an NBA conversation that we have in free association, especially around the Raptors. I want to touch on them, and they are in this purgatory of meaninglessness. For a minute, they lost to Oklahoma City at home. They lost to Charlotte at home. I don't really read that much into those games because the Raptors didn't necessarily care where those teams are fighting in terms of seeding. There were some real good moments. This is the one thing, though, that I take from those games that I find interesting they started to play and close with not Gasol at the five not Serge at the five Pascal at the five right something that I've wanted to see for a minute we're starting to see it now do you think that's something we're going to see more and more as we go forward and really in the playoffs yeah definitely I think we talked about it last week where you know they have so much options and we always you know talk about that but I think with Pascal basically being able to play any position you want on the floor, I think, you know, there's certain situations in the playoffs where, the, you know, it's going to come time where Pascal is going to be playing the five. And I think it's just a, a, another tool under their belt, being able to to bring that out. And, you know, one of the things I noticed uh, we talked about early, really early, early in the season was Lowry's health. And, you know, it seems like he can't really get above the water in that sense. But as long as he's out there, he, he changes the dynamic of the team. But I do really think he, he has to be healthy and playing well for them to really reach their potential, you know, that the roster has. The other thing we saw is Kawhi play two games in a row. Right. People were worried about him playing back-to-back nights. It got to the point where he wasn't playing back-to-back games. He's, mm-hmm. he's obviously done that now. This is their schedule from now to the rest of the regular season, which ends on April 9th, versus the Bulls, who are 21-53. They go at the Knicks, who are 14-60. and 60. At the Bulls, 21 and 53, versus the Magic at home, 35 and 38. To Brooklyn, who they could see in the in the first round, mm-hmm. 38 and 36. It's one team above 500. Then they come back with the Hornets, 34 and 39, who will still be playing for a playoff spot at that point. The Heat, 36 and 37, who could be playing for a playoff spot at that point. And then finish at Minnesota. Uh, the Timberwolves are 33 and 40 and will be far from playoff contention. In the eight games that we have left, what, if anything, can we learn about this team? Is this just a second preseason for the team now as they head to the postseason? That's a great way to put it, actually. I feel like, you know, they're more worried about health and rhythm and chemistry, you know, and not so much, you know, let's win as many games as we can. And obviously that's always the main goal, but... You know, I think if you could trade health for, you know, winning these last couple of games, I think the Raptors would do that. And, you know, I don't think they have much to prove to themselves either beating teams like Chicago or other than the, um, you know, the Brooklyn game, which is a playoff match. And I think you could kind of set the tone, you know, if you do play Brooklyn in the first round by playing them right now and, and really handling business. But they should win at least, you know, five, six out of those games. But you never know. I think you will, we'll see some guys resting, you know, whether it's Kawhi or anybody else for that matter, um, just so that they're at full health as much as possible, but also, you know, have energy and kind of go into the playoffs playing well as opposed to dealing with injuries and, you know, fatigue. 
they have felt no type of way about chasing down Milwaukee mm-hmm. for number one. It's been pretty obvious they don't care. In fact, they've openly said they don't care about seeding. When you had the Brogdon injury, and Brogdon's a 50-40-90 guy, he's mm-hmm. really important for that team, and then the Miritich injury, the guy who they got at the trade deadline, you then start to think, well, maybe they should have taken this chase a little bit more serious. On the flip side, if those injuries go deep into the playoffs, maybe Milwaukee might not end up reaching the conference finals, right. and then that number one seed may not matter. I think it'll be interesting. Forget about Kawhi's minutes because they have a template in terms of what the threshold is for him in terms of testing that quad. Lowry's minutes are the ones I'm really interested in. Mm-hmm. You have two guys who can play extended minutes and Jeremy Lin and Fred Van Vliet. Lowry recently hurt his ankle again. I wouldn't be surprised if he is shut down for a good number of those games moving into the postseason. I, I think it would be smart, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the reason they went and got Lynn, you know, just, you know, I think he gives you a little bit more insurance at the third point guard spot if you're going to get rid of DeLon Wright. I think that's a, a huge pickup for them and, and dealing with Lowry and Van Vliet who have had, you know, injury problems basically the whole season. But I think it's tough to kind of shut it down just because at that point it'd be what, eight games, eight plus games sitting out and then you're expecting him to kind of go full, you know, full throttle head into the playoffs. So I think he, uh, he did say something about kind of wanted to play through the pain just to keep his rhythm and, and chemistry with the team and everything like that. But, you know, I think it, it is a fine balance. And, you know, you're not only doing that with Kawhi now, it's kind of balancing staying in rhythm and, and being fresh, but you're doing that with Lowry. So Raptors are really lucky to have gotten Lynn, you know, through the buyout market and whatnot. But, you know, they have a really deep team. And, and I think they could, you know, kind of pace themselves through the finish line. But obviously need Kawhi, but you really need Kyle Lowry out there in the playoffs. And, you know, we said that from earlier in the season. I got a stat for you. Two centers, these are their numbers since the trade deadline. Center A, 19.4 points on 57.1 shooting, 9.6 boards, 2.1 assists, 1.4 blocks. He's playing 27.3 minutes a night. Center B, 9.1 points on 46.9 shooting, 6.7 boards, 3.8 assists, 0.9 blocks, and 24.5 minutes a night. Which center would you rather have? <laughs> player A? Player A is Jonas Valanciunas. Mm. Player B is Marcus. Right. <laughs> Am I reading too much into the numbers? When the trade happened, I said, I like Gasol. I thought the cost was a little bit high. I thought people slept on the value of Jonas Valanciunas. Mm-hmm. They need to put a little more respect on his name. That even if you said Gasol is a better player in a vacuum at his age, the fact that JV was under team control for more years and Gasol was a free agent after this year. The fact that JV was not just traded straight up for Gasol, but it was also traded with DeLon Wright and with CJ Miles, both of which played well in Memphis, although CJ Miles is now hurt. Mm-hmm. I said, I don't know if this trade is a slam dunk. Am I reading too much into the numbers and not stressing the fit on the team? Or is there something to the fact that JV has been productive even outside of Toronto. Yeah, I mean, I think it's different situations. I think it's, I don't know if Marcus Hall was putting up those numbers in Memphis, but I think it's different playing for a team where you realize that you're playing for a championship as opposed to in Memphis where you're not. You know, you, you know if you're playing for Memphis, you guys aren't playing for a championship. So you could kind of go out there and play freely, um, you know, make mistakes. Whereas Marcus Hall is coming into a team who has championship aspirations, definitely, you know, expect to win the East. And, 
You know, I think it's a, a different process and kind of going in and playing your game if you're Valanchunas on a team that isn't that good. Whereas on the Raptors, you're kind of trying to fit in and, and see where you match up with everybody. And you know, I don't think that's an easy thing, but I think, you know, as players, we've seen a lot of people uh, talk about just the NBA being opportunity and fit. And, you know, the best thing that could happen for JV was to get a fresh start. And, you know, you've seen him playing probably the best basketball in, in a long time, you know, in Memphis. But, you know, sometimes that's just what players need is a new situation, a new coach, you know, just a, a different environment. JV feels like he's been here, you know, forever in Toronto. So, you know, maybe that's what he needed for his career as opposed to, um, you know, kind of sticking around and being comfortable as a Raptor. The other thing that I was not sure about that trade is DeLon Wright, although offensively he may have plateaued, his value defensively harassing other point guards is invaluable, especially when you look at the point guards in the East that you may face off in the playoffs. Round one, D'Angelo Russell, who's mm-hmm. an all-star. Kemba Walker had a career-high 13 assists against the Raptors in Toronto. And you could see a Kyrie Irving in the playoffs, and I mean, he's been outstanding on the biggest stage in the NBA Finals, never mind in an Eastern Conference playoff situation. Kyrie Irving and Kimbo Walker are interesting because they both could be free agents this offseason. Right. Although Kyrie has played in higher situations and, and has gotten much more coverage, I don't know if I might not prefer to take Kemba, who will be cheaper and less maintenance. Mm-hmm. Kemba gave him the business. 36-11-9 and nine, This was the game the Hornets played the night before playing the Raptors. The Hornets went on a 30-5 to five run to win the game and after Kyrie Irving was not happy he said in his post game comments it's one on one bad pride um, you know down the stretch try to come in and help as much as possible we should have probably trapped him a little bit more like every other team does in the league um, but we did torches us every time we no surprise which to me is a shot to Brad Stevens I don't foresee Kyrie Irving staying in Boston but I also if I'm another guy in the locker room like why don't you man up and pick this guy up at the center or three-quarter court? Why don't you get a stop yourself? Right. If you hear that as a guy in the locker room, what's your first reaction? Well, first, I think my initial thoughts in hearing that is that, you know, that could obviously have been a conversation between him and Stevens mm-hmm. and not through the media from a guy who hates talking to the media. You know what I'm saying? So I think that was deliberate in him saying that, but I don't see what... um other than showing that he's not particularly happy right now, you know, I don't see what point that kind of makes for him. But, you know, if I'm the Celtics, I'm kind of looking at it as we have Tatum, who's kind of in his second year and he's really good, but he's also kind of figuring out. And what I noticed, you know, as a player is that the veterans on each team are so important because they teach you how to be a pro. And on the court, obviously, Kyrie is somebody that is going to be beneficial for Tatum and teaching him how to work and everything like that. But off the court, if you're dealing with, Kyrie and you know he's able to say what he wants then Tatum's basically gonna do the same thing as he gets older and Jalen Brown and you know all those guys so I feel like Kyrie's been doing this purposely to show that he's not as happy as you know he once was when he publicly said he was resigning you know basically when the season started so you know I think it kind of put him in a position where you know he kind of has to go back on his word or you know stick it out but that's a um a tough thing if you're signing a five-year deal and you're you're not happy now you know the money's great but you know after you sign that contract it's about basketball and you know I, I honestly wouldn't be surprised if, I, if we've seen him leaving but you know with the Celtics keeping Rozier through the deadline and this season I think it gives them 
you know, a backup plan if Kyrie does leave. But I think it'd be a, a, a shame if, if Kyrie walks out the door where, you know, if you traded him at the deadline, you could have got, you know, a, a huge package for him. So, but I think that's the game that GMs have to play. Yeah. And the other thing that had me kind of cheesed this weekend is a tweet came out by inside the NCAA, an NCAA <laughs> Twitter account. The tweet reads, the NCAA provides free Wi-Fi to student-athletes at all of the team hotels during the D1 Men's Basketball Championship. Full disclosure, the tweet is from 2016. It got resurfaced this weekend. I responded to it, and I said, congrats. So do coffee shops. The TV contract is $19.6 billion. Pay the players. A billion dollars with a B. And that's not even including, there's a 60 Minutes piece that came out this weekend. It's a pretty good watch. The amount of money that's being made on gambling on the tournament alone. Right. It's not just office pool, like actual registered bets is 10.6 billion a year. And that was last year. Now with legalized betting in many States, that number is going to go through the roof. Everybody is making money right. off the tournament. I have full plans to win multiple brackets. <laughs> you heard it here first. I'm going to be caking off the NCAA tournament. Everyone's making money off the tournament except the players. Right. You were a player. I'm tired of fighting with Twitter eggs talking about <laughs> they are paid. They get their education for free. Isn't that worth something? No, it's not actually because the coaches aren't out here coaching for free. Right. I'm tired of fighting that fight because I just think if you don't think they should get paid, you're, you're dumb. And, and it's not your money. What do you care? Why should the players be paid? Um, tough. I think as a player, I look at it as you know, the education part is huge. And, you know, obviously people have huge student loans that they pay off basically for years and years heading into basically what's the real world. But, you know, I think if you're talented enough to get a, a scholarship at any level, you know, it's a, a huge thing because you go to college for free. But at the same time, I think we're just looking at it as student athletes that they're making so much money. You know, I think it'd be different if the NCAA was really, you know, struggling to make ends meet. I don't think we as players and student athletes would be fighting for money because they're barely staying afloat. But when we see billion dollar contracts signed, we've seen schools getting paid millions of dollars for, you know, making the tournament, the ones really putting in the work outside of the coaches is the players. And as much as a free education is great, you know, it's tough to kind of realize you leave college with zero dollars from the NCAA where they're making billions of dollars. So, where's the money going one, but also outside of getting paid, there's so many rules. And I think you'd never really understand unless you were in that position, you're basically restricted on where you can play in the summer in leagues. You're basically restricted on buying Wi-Fi and buying movies in a hotel where what it was at Syracuse for us was you could only get free Wi-Fi if you have work to be done from Syracuse. And we find it hard to believe that an organization that's making billions of dollars on us that, they can't afford to give us free Wi-Fi in, in those hell when we're about to go out and play. You know what I'm saying? So it's just things like that that, you know, kind of open your eyes. And, you know, with the Shabazz Napier coming out, I think it was four years ago when he was on the, the biggest stage in the Final Four talking about, you know, sometimes you go to bed hungry, you know, because, you know, there are certain stipulations on the money they could give you. They're limited to school itself in what they can give you and what's an illegal benefit. And, you know, I think they changed that and, it's easy to buy more food for the kids because you're making billions of dollars. But I don't know another, as much as you guys want to call a student athlete, it's a job because we have to show up every day. You know, we're hold to, to such a high standard. We're 
doing so much, you know, for ourselves in the sport, but also for the school to not get paid. I don't know another sport. I don't know another job, anything that, you know, the employees don't get paid. And we see coaches making millions of dollars, athletic directors making millions of dollars. And the only people that don't make money is the players. And, you know, the amateurism thing is we get it, but there's, I feel like there's still ways that NCAA could keep us as amateurs through the duration of us being in college, but also kind of pay compensation for bringing the viewers and, you know, kind of putting in so much work for the university without uh, ruining the college system. But I just don't see the NCAA really looking for, you know, solutions to this. And I think that's what, you know, the most disturbing part is because we see all the numbers. It's so public on social media, but, you know, you don't see any new rules being put in that, that kind of compensate the players at all. So there's multiple arguments as to why the players shouldn't be paid. None of them to me make any sense, but let's deconstruct them. One is, oh, well, they're students. Other students don't get paid. This is not a job. Yes, it is a job. What's the definition of a job? You tell me where to be. Tell me what to do. Tell me what to wear. Right. That's a job. <laughs> I don't like that is a job. Yeah. Student athletes. The student comes first in mm-hmm. that phrase. But when you are a student athlete, your class schedule is built around your athletic practice and practice and weight, lifts. Yeah. there are classes that you can take while you're a student. You may mm-hmm. have to take them in the summer or out of season. So let's not get this twisted. If you said to Coach Beheim, hey man, there's this course on modern history writing. I'm really interested in taking it. Mm. It just happens to fall when we have film. Guess what? You're not taking modern (laughs) history writing. That's just the way it is. And so for those who say it's not a job, it's a job. Northwestern in football, their players try to form a union, but it's a job. Now some people say, well, there's other people on campus who are under scholarship why should those athletes be any different? I don't know what the perfect system is. Mm-hmm. I don't know if a rowing athlete should get the same amount of money as Zion Williamson. In, in fact, logic would say they shouldn't. Mm-hmm. But giving both of them nothing doesn't seem to make right. more sense. Right. So even though we can't divvy up the funds fairly, that doesn't mean nobody should get funds. The rowing coach and the lacrosse coach at Duke is not as valuable as Coach K. Somehow we figured out how to pay all of them. Right. So why can't we figure out a system to adequately support the student-athletes on multiple levels? This is the part that really upsets me. If I get a musical scholarship, mm-hmm. I'm like the baddest flute player in the Midwest. <laughs> I can still do recitals. Make one I on can the side, still right? do things. I get to have a little concert. I can put my music on Apple Music. Right. I can still make money on the side, and nobody is hurt by nobody it. Nobody cares, yeah. So if Tyler Ennis wants to sell his Iceman shirts, <laughs> if actually Drake wants to sell your Iceman shirts, the little Iceman OVO <laughs> collabo while you're at Syracuse, the orange and the gold that looks good together, who's hurt by that? At the the very minimum. If the NCAA, which is basically a cartel at this point, says, man, you know what rich people don't do? They don't give away money for free. We're not giving away any money to the players because we don't have to. Fine. I get it. Right. That's how mob bosses operate. I get it. But at least let the players make money on the side without penalizing it. You talk about all the rules. Some of those rules are crazy. And if you want 
to sign a bunch of autographs at the student center and make some money off that. I don't see why that's an issue. Yeah, you can't get paid on that. I'm glad you touched on the shirts. Is you know me being at Syracuse, obviously, I was just kind of enjoying the ride. I was I was there, and midway through the season, shirts are popping up with my number and a Canadian flag. I'm the only Canadian player on the team, and they're being sold in the bookstore. And at the time, it's great. You know, that's what you dream of as a kid: people wearing your jersey, wearing your shirts and whatever and you know i was talking to someone in my family and it's like you know you really get zero dollars you know it's in the bookstore you know people are going to buy their textbooks and they're buying your shirt along with it and you're going to leave syracuse and if you don't go to the nba you're leaving there with your education and zero dollars when every opportunity they get to make money on you they're going to do and capitalize on it so i don't think it is the right solution but if they say all right we're paying every athlete the same amount i think that's a start but saying we're paying everyone zero is not is ridiculous. But I also think in the real world, in any job, the better you are, the more you get paid. And my thing is, Zion Williamson is the biggest name in college sports. And, oh, we don't want to pay him a certain amount that's more than whatever the soccer player at Duke. But at the same time, after those four years of college, you're going to go somewhere and you're going to get paid on your performance. And... I just don't understand why they make it such a big deal because if that soccer player goes and plays soccer somewhere and he's not as good as Messi or Neymar, they're obviously not going to get paid the same. And that's an issue for me just because they try to make it into us being students when in reality it's the real world and that's the way it should be treated. CBS has a Zion cam. Right. You can log on and watch exclusively Zion. Right. CBS is making money off that. If that Zion cam does well... The next time there's a rights deal, the NCAA is going to be like, yo, we want that money up. Right. So the NCAA, even though not in this moment, eventually over time is making money off that. But Zion can't make money off that. Right. He's the one in the gym. He's the one running stairs. But yet you got this free education. And the other thing about people who argue about, oh, you're getting an education. It's free. It's not free. Free is something that you hand to anybody who comes up. It's not free. They earn that education, one. And two is that education is often given to people who can't even really fully take advantage of it. We talked about the fact that what classes you can or cannot take is dictated by your athletics. But also, newsflash, your minimum SAT score if you're a scholarship student athlete is not the same if you're just applying to social sciences like anybody else. Right. So oftentimes you have athletes who aren't as educated as the broader population at the school, but yet they have to compete with them in the same classes with less disposable time right. because they got a full-time job. They're 100%. being a student athlete. Right. So oftentimes I mean, there are great situations where there are student centers with tutors and there are ways to help the student athletes but it's not as if okay good i'm showing up in east lansing or durham and i just got to hang around for four years and i got a degree no in fact it's more challenging for the student athlete to actually pay in and cash out that free quote-unquote education and get that degree because of the situation that they find themselves in just to keep the scholarship in the first place 100 percent, yeah and I don't think you'll understand that ever if you weren't a student athlete. And I think that's why so many are fighting. And you see people on Twitter or whatever talking about it, but there's really no day where your schedule is not filled from waking up early to go into class, to weightlifting, to study hall, to tutoring, to doing homework, to doing this group project. So 
as much as we complain, it's a great situation to be in. But at the same time, we're working a full-time job trying to keep up with students who go to class and can spend all day studying where we go to class and we have the same test that you guys have. We have the same homework that needs to be due and we're practicing for two hours. We're lifting for another hour. We're getting treatment. We're going home. There's no, you know, we're, we're figuring out where to eat because we can't take meals and we can't do anything. And, you know, I just think it's a great thing to get a free education, but I think they could set up the players that are making so much money. And I had an argument with somebody that, you know, half of the people watching is for the university. There's people that no matter who Tennessee plays, they're going to tune in. And I understand that. But at the same time, if there was another league or there was another place that these players can go and get a free education, I think we'd have, we'd see something different. But right now the NCAA is the only thing that's the safe route. You know, you can go to Europe, you can go to the G league, but at the same time, the safest thing is to get an education. I think they realize that, which is why we haven't seen much changes outside of uh, giving the players more food and giving them free Wi-Fi. That is true, that the brands these schools have built are strong. Mm -hmm. Kentucky, they're going to fill the building, regardless of what one-and-dones come through. Same for Duke, same for Syracuse. But guess what? When those Duke-UNC tickets were being sold for Super Bowl-level prices... That's not because it was Duke UNC. Mm-hmm. It's because it was Zion and RJ. Right. Brock could see Duke UNC whenever he wanted. He wanted to see it that year because those guys because they're there. move the needle. And so you can't just say it's solely about the school. Right. Because there are big time players who at the college level are already celebrities. I mean, Zion and RJ have more followers on social media than some of the schools they're playing against in the tournament. Yeah, for sure. So don't tell me that they don't have an audience that they would love to capture. They should just be able to have influencer deals on their social media alone where they could get paid and it wouldn't mess with the school. And I know everyone is smashing that NCAA tweet and I am fully guilty. I thought the tweet was embarrassing. But in fact, the reason why they were highlighting the fact that Wi-Fi was paid for because as you point out, normally it's not. Yeah. <laughs> and normally, if you wanted to Netflix and chill on the road, you were going to be pay. You would have to. The school would say, "Yeah, you're paying for all those movies that were run up on the room while you were staying right. on the road." The, there are crazy rules that I don't think the average person understands because they see the facilities when you see the behind the scenes features and you right. see. These great meeting rooms with great projector screens and these great weight rooms that are better than pro facilities. But what you don't see is in the cafeteria, you can get 2% milk. You can get whole milk. But if you want almond milk, well, that's an above board expense that you're not allowed based on NCAA rules to have. There's all of these crazy, crazy rules that ultimately... Can these programs afford to provide almond milk? Is mm-hmm. anyone benefiting from the fact that you had some almond milk in your life? No. And that's why when you have seen it up close, it's kind of crazy. There's an economics term, and it's basically that the market will always regulate. Mm-hmm. So you can put in all sorts of rules, all sorts of regulations. The market will actually decide what is fair. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I know players should be paid because players are being paid. There's an FBI case right. all about the fact that players have been paid for a long time and are still being paid. 
How many 30 for 30s are just about NCAA yeah, athletes right, that yeah. have gotten money under the table? LSU's coach is not coaching them in the tournament because of what allegedly happened in terms of players being paid. So you know who agrees that the players should be paid? The coaches, because somehow cause they're, they're finding <laughs> some money to pay these players. 100%. So the dudes who are watching at home arguing with me about whether or not players should be paid. I mean, the cat's already out of the bag. They're being paid. So do you want us to wiretap people to find out what they're being paid? Or should we just pay them? Because that's what's happening. I went to, when I was covering the tournament, not going to say any names, but I would would go to schools to do features on wherever the Canadians were at at that time. And you'd pull up to the facility and you're like, hmm, Escalade, Range Rover. These are not (laughs) the student cars that I used to see <laughs> at Soggy Maitland, uh, the campus of Western Ontario, there's players who are getting taken care of in every conference in the United States. So to act like they shouldn't be paid is crazy. They should just actually be paid what they're worth and they shouldn't have to feel like they're doing something wrong to people, hide Yeah, it. people shouldn't be going to jail over something that should be happening. Yeah. I agree. Another thing I talked about a little bit with people is just um, a lot of the people arguing that the players get scholarships, they don't realize that, you know, a lot of these people don't come from homes where if they weren't playing basketball or a sport, they wouldn't be going to college. And as much as the Mellow Center at Syracuse is amazing, you know, the student center is great and, you know, they have the best facilities, at some point this kid's going to go home. And if he's coming from a home where there's no money, how does it look that he's working for a billion dollar company you know, he has his free education, but he's going home and, you know, his parents aren't able to keep up on the bills or, you know, he's going home and he's, he's not getting that whole milk that he's getting, you know, in the student center. And I think that's just ridiculous. Obviously, the NCAA has way more employees to pay than the NBA and professional sports. But I think, you know, with the numbers that they're coming up with and the deals they're signing, there's literally no excuse, you know, for them not to compensate the players at whatever level they decide to, because at the end of the day, they're in control as of now. But I think we're seeing a shift. With more people speaking up, we're seeing former players, former student-athletes speaking up, and hopefully at some point we get to the, get enough power and whatever, have a union where you know they could fight back and really compensate. But I think not everyone is able to play professional sports, and if you could set people up for life as a billion-dollar company for making you this money, why wouldn't you do that? And that's one of the most disturbing parts. Just they don't make changes because they don't have to. And hopefully the NBA or the G League or something could come up with ways where it's safe to go another route rather than going to college and doing that. Because if, you know, the first game of the season, Zion Williamson had a career ending injury, Duke isn't compensating him for anything. He gets the free education, but now he's a regular student. He's not making the hundred million from Nike. He's not, you know, going to make endorsement deals. And I think people never look at the other side. They look at Zion on his way to make millions of dollars in a few months, but it could have went the other way, you know, depending on the situation. And a lot of kids never make it to that level. Yeah. If his Kyrie's didn't explode, but that ankle exploded. Right. This conversation would be totally different. This is an important conversation one we'll continue to have. I have zero power, so people won't listen to me. But <laughs> you've been through it, so I appreciate your perspective. Hopefully they'll listen to you. Thanks for this, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I don't know if you noticed, but 
The treatment of NCAA athletes is something that I'm passionate about and really pessimistic about. Something I'm passionate about and optimistic about is the state of journalism in our country when it comes to females and their place telling the stories that we love in sports. There is nobody who's done that more consistently than Rachel Brady. She's covering the Raptors right now, and I want her take on it. Now, we're pleased to be joined by Rachel Brady, or at R. Brady Globe, if you've been following her on Twitter. And if you have, you know that she covers not just basketball. I don't know what you don't cover. <laughs> U-sports, esports. you've been on the CFL beat in the past. Tennis is taking up a lot of your time. Women's hockey. Women's came hockey. From there. Yes. With the Clarkson Cup you were at this past weekend. I don't know when your husband sleeps, because he hosts the morning <laughs> show, but when do you sleep? <laughs> Quite late, usually after uh, after filing. Quite late in the evening. So you guys just don't see each other, basically. Is what you're saying? Yeah. Oh, sure. We our weekends are good. We we sometimes have the kids home for lunch from school or something, just because we know I'll be working a Raptors game or something like that. So it's a different family life from the typical nine to fiver life, but yeah, we make it work for, for sure. sure. Well, the Raptors are trying to make it work, and they're a team you've been around for a bit, not just this year, but in the past. Is there a different feeling around the team this year than you've seen in the last couple of years? Different feeling, different faces, different identity, for sure. Like, I feel like it has, like, think about that roster, what it looked like at the beginning of the year and what it looks like now. It just is constant state of flux and it's just morphing and morphing. I feel like it's not even that sort of we the North identity team almost anymore, right? Like it's still, they're certainly still hardworking, um, but I don't know that they still have that scrappy, no one believes in us. Like you can't really say that about them as much anymore. When you have Kawhi Leonard on the team, you can't really say it's a sort of underachieving, under-respected bunch and seeing where they've sat in the standings for most of the season, certainly in the one and two spot, mostly in the two spot. It's hard to have that no one respects us. No one believes in us anymore. Um, so it's, I think it has a very different vibe. Yeah. If we peel back the curtain a little bit, at least I'll speak for myself. You can disagree. But as journalists, reporters, oftentimes we're, we're cheering for the narrative, like the storyline. Sure. Always. And not necessarily people think, oh, you're a homer for this team. No, I actually just want like a good story. And for a while, I thought that good story was going to be Pistons in the first round. Wayne Casey comes back. would be great for you as a former <laughs> Michigander. Very comfortable there. Yeah, yes. definitely. New arena, but uh, some familiar sights. And now, because this team is so different, I almost wonder if the great juxtaposition would be them playing the Nets. And you look at that first playoff series. How different. Where, how different both franchises are. The yeah. Nets were way over the salary cap and they had KG and, and they were supposed to be, you know, a title contender and they barely got through the first round with this mm-hmm. upstart Raptors team that was supposed to be tanking. Now we flip it a couple of years and the Nets are a team with a great salary cap situation. They were young and their bench is fun, led by Sean Marks and the Raptors are the team that is hoping to get to the title. And you're right. The hashtag is the same, We the North, but right. where the franchises are so, so different. Thanks now. for just writing my preview for me. There that was a go. really nice summary. I'm just going to slap that right at the top of my uh, playoff preview when the, if that's the matchup indeed, right? And I think every day 
I love the tension right now of looking at the standings every day and going, Brooklyn, Detroit, who is it? Ooh, what could Miami do here? Is Orlando out of it? Oh my God, Charlotte's trying to win every game. Like you're looking at the end every day. I think this is what this time of year is supposed to be about because it sure isn't about the basketball. Right. <laughs> like they're out there every night going, just don't break an ankle. So Brooklyn would be interesting, I guess. I think selfishly, the storylines for me are more dramatic if it's Dwayne Casey's Pistons. Um, And not just because I certainly worked in that market and playoff time in Detroit is is a special, it's a really fun market to be in. And I think I envision all these people going over the border from Toronto to, and maybe it happens the other way too. I, I doubt it, not as much, and they wouldn't be easily getting tickets in Toronto, but I think people would find their way over there and I can imagine that sort of fan storyline. So I definitely am favoring that for the pure stories, but I can see that being able to tie in those two timelines and the great uh, change between Brooklyn when Paul Pierce is batting away this ball to end it in the most dramatic way in game seven in Toronto. Um, I just remember a fan being so upset behind press row that they chucked a beer down and it landed in that moment when we're trying to file our stories right on my computer and Laura Ewing's Laura Ewing from Canadian press thing beside me. And both of our computers are covered in beer from some (sighs) devastated fan that just chucks their beer in total frustration. So that's my lasting impression of that series and the way Paul Pierce sort of, disrespected and imposed his will and his personality into that series, which makes the playoffs so interesting to me is when all these personalities come out. So it would be kind of fun to dig back into some of those stories. It's a neat one too, but I I still am kind of partial to the Detroit storylines. For sure. I mean, having a logger on your your keyboard (laughs) is not the way you want to start. very sticky for a very long time after Uh, that. But that speaks to how people invested people were, right? In that moment. And throwing beers in Detroit, it's a little bit of a different scene historically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, The outcomes are a bit different. But I remember that time, that spring, where it all seemed like extra credit. Like, this is this great Mm -hmm. magical run, but our future is ahead of us. Our team is young. And I remember the the last couple postseasons where there was just this, like, inevitable sense of doom at the end mm-hmm. like if you remember what you'd remember or you may not because you were wiping up your computer screen <laughs> trying not to have to call like mac help to, to figure out how you're going to write your story but kyle is on the ground damar kind of helps him up puts his arm around him yeah the team leaves the floor and if memory serves correct and i've been hit in the head a bunch but i believe that they got a standing ovation that group they were cheered off the floor after losing a first yeah. round series the la- there was a sense of love there, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if that's happening mm. if they lose no. in the first round oh, or God, even no. the second round Mm-mm. this year. So the the expectations have mm. changed dramatically, mm. and I'm not sure if this fan base has dealt with the success well in the last couple of years. There's mm. now an expectation of okay, well. Mm-hmm. These regular seasons have been great. You've broken a bunch of franchise records. Well, what are you going to do in April, May, and June. And I think no year is that more true than this year because April, May, and June are directly going to impact July. Yeah, (laughs) there's no question. They've either got to go to the finals or buy enough time with Kawhi to do it next year. Those are the only two scenarios that are palatable at all to anyone in this market. And who knows what his checkbook 
list is, right? Did I have a good time this year? Do I want to come back? Who knows what's on that list? There could be things outside of basketball that none of us have any idea about. But if they don't get there now, the window is so small. There's more tension this time than any other time. No question. There's just so much on the line this time for it. What's the definition of success for this group? And I mean, I, I mean, I have mine. I'm sure you have yours. But ultimately, what, what matters is what they internally believe is success. Is getting to a final success? Is winning one success? Is Kawhi resigning regardless of outcome success? Do you have a sense? Oh, I think getting there. I think getting to the final is like breaking further than they've broken before. A new level is a must, right? Like I don't think even a repeat of the other, you know, failing at the altar to get there is considered a success, not for this group. Mm -hmm. When you give up what you gave up to get Kawhi, when you go crazy, you know, during the season to make all these moves, when you put the development into guys like Pascal Siakam, and Fred Van Vliet, when you make all those moves and you're so ready, <laughs> the window is just so small to get this guy to resign. I think that's just the only way to see it. The only outcome that's acceptable, I think, to that group. I think if you ask Kyle Lowry, I, I don't think anything you know less than the NBA Finals is acceptable to him. What's the temperament been like around the team this year? I'm not there enough to really get a sense, but from afar... Kind of feels like with the Kawhi situation, with the load management, if it's going away and if it's not going away, that there is a bit of walking on eggshells, I, I suppose would be the best way to describe it. But the team is almost like there's there's two teams. There's Kawhi and Kyle, these two leaders who lead so differently. And the rest of the team just goes back and forth, like shared custody between yeah. divorced parents. And even when they play with just one of the stars, the team is drastically different. Right. And I think everyone's wondering what it looks like when you put that family back together. Mm -hmm. Not that there was any rift or reason for there to, to be apart. It was injuries, right? We don't know what it really looks like when Kyle and Kawhi are really gelling. We really don't know that yet. We saw glimpses of it for sure. We've seen the other players come on. We've seen, it's just with the guys being injured and load management situation, we just have seen so few games where they've been able to be together and have the five. And I think in, a, in an honest moment, I, I'm not sure Nick Nurse for sure knows what his, what his starting five is. And I think it's really reliant on who they play. Last year, there were so things were more certain in that way. You had your five and you had your bench mob. And the, there was the friendships that kind of weaved throughout there, but it was, there weren't questions about that kind of thing until there needed to be. Oh, do they need to make changes because they're losing against Cleveland? Let's shuffle up lineups. But this year, it's like you could ask... 100 people in Toronto who they think the starting five is going to be in the first round and you get different answers. That was an easy to understand group. It was an easy to sort of read group the way they were together. It was bench mob starters. And now it's a, a group of guys that may or may not, you know, are going to be shuffled in and out and used in varying ways at the two, the three, the four, or wherever they might be needed. So, yeah, it's different. Last one on the team, and because I want to get to so many... Other things uh, with you aside of this this actual team, but you mentioned that role definition mm. and how many moving parts there have been this year. Some by situation, some by design. I think that's the greatest difference between Nick Nurse and Dwayne Casey. Yeah. And sometimes I think your greatest strength can be your greatest weakness. And I loved about Dwayne, other than the man that he is was that 
roles were clearly defined to the point where he would give players literally roll cards literally roll cards my yeah. favorite thing in the world. i yeah. feel like every business even every family would be better mm. if it clear no questions about it yeah. yeah this is what you do however people have said in the playoffs when, it, when everyone's scouting your your weakness and your tendencies and your go-to spots that you might need to be a little bit more flexible and might need to make changes a little faster that was the criticism of coach casey nick nurse is like Everything's on the table. I'm a mad scientist. In fact, this entire regular season is only for me to look at different lineups, get as many metrics on them as possible so I can see what works and I can apply that to the real season, which is the postseason. But I watched this team and last night's game, and we're taping this on on Monday morning, full disclosure, last night's game against the Hornets was the only time Nick Nurse has had his entire lineup for the beginning of the game and they got through and finished the end of the game without being hurt and we're a couple weeks from the playoffs and I, I just wonder at some point basketball is not just fantasy basketball it's such a game of understanding and communication and fit and do you not need to play with guys and understanding how they're going to move be able to read their bodies and have an understanding of what you're going to be asked to do in the biggest moments with the brightest lights so that that's my biggest fear with this group on that pendulum or continuum between Casey and, and nurse, how have you seen the, the differences as you've covered the two men and the two teams? Yeah. I am constantly reminded every time Nick is asked about personnel or lineups or rotations that he spent a great deal of time. What was then the D league now the G league having to manage a different group of guys every night. And you don't know if guys are being called up and guys are injured or whatever. He was dealing with different players every night. And so he learned to be creative. He was always creative. I think that was always the backbone of what he did, but that he could deal with what he was played that night, right? He could just go out there and and go on the fly and improvise. And that was the strength of things. And he had a lot of success doing that. Now, to speak to your concern, how does that create chemistry, right? In the end, when you want guys to be able to look at each other in the playoffs and know a guy is there, know what that screen feels like, know how everything's going to work, know that the spacing is, know a guy is going to be there and ready for your pass, know how he likes his pass, know how he likes everything around the rim. So whether or not five people can get on the floor together and look like they've been teammates all year when some of them clearly haven't is the great mystery of this team right now. And I think right now, I don't even think Kyle would have come back last night if there weren't such a small handful of games left, I think they would have left him out longer. I think there's a sense of we're getting into crunch time here. We need to, there's some things we need to work on chemistry wise. We need to know coverages. We need to shore up some things. We need to figure out how not to turn the ball over because we are doing that a lot lately. I think they're saying those things to themselves right now. And I think they're, they're starting to feel that like we need to see what we have before we line up in game one. You not just covering the MLSC teams that play on the court. You cover the MLSC teams that play with joysticks that play <laughs> in front of the one two K team. Yep, yep. Yeah, esports has become part of your beat and part yeah, of what you're, bit, you're, yeah. you're known for. Mm-hmm. Where is this going? Which I guess oh, is the goodness. million dollar question. But an organization like MLSC that prints money that doesn't need <sighs> to invest in something unless there's a definite return on investment. What's your interpretation of them adding that to their already very busy sports portfolio yeah and i think we're seeing now that uh that they have a 2k team but this is not 
something that they just figured out now. They have a strategy team that's looked years in advance about the trends and they've filled that building with esports events mm-hmm. and and went wow look at the crowd in here look at the young people look at the diversity look at how they engage they're so social they're buying concessions they're doing all of the things that sports fans are doing and they're filling buildings like that right so they're getting in it they also are realizing the connection between sports and esports, and that it's a different way. You might not feel like you can get on the court and play. Maybe you have more of a strength where you can relate to the players in the 2K video game. So that automatically teaches you about players. It teaches you about teams. It teaches you about the sport personalities, and it gives you an interest. So it's another way to reach young people that might not necessarily be interested in basketball or that league, right? So, so it's smart that they did that. And then there's this other group now that's outside of MLSE, um, but who is modeling itself after MLSE, who wants to own teams led by Chris Overholt, formerly of the Canadian Olympic Committee, who wants to own teams in different big titles. And they want to operate like MLSE does, but in esports. Their big acquisition is, uh, their big buy was, a, was an Overwatch team, um, which is extremely popular. And so I think a couple years from now, we're going to see as early as next year we're going to see live events where people are filling maybe not stadium size but venues are going to be filling those places to watch live esports on stage uh, they are already watching it by the millions on twitter and twitch and it's not twitter but they're watching on twitch they're talking on twitter about it and all the social platforms and the ad space is, is filling up with it too which is people that would normally be putting their ad dollars into Traditional sports are also now putting it into esports. So people are discovering it in big numbers and the growth that it's seeing, it's growing at a faster rate, which is crazy. Like it's growing at a faster rate than a lot of these professional sports leagues did when they started out. Social media helps that, I guess. But um, when you have kids who are that interested in in esports, they're going to help it grow pretty quickly and their interest is definitely peaked. I'm sure when you started your career, you did not think I was going to be covering Video games, no, essentially. And I'll tell you what else I didn't expect is to sometimes be preparing for an interview with either an eSport athlete or a game developer or um, the commissioner of the Overwatch League. And for me to go to my 10-year-old and my 13-year-old at home, um, I have a question <laughs> about how this game works or how this... And they'll be like, oh, right, mom. Well, here, and they can give me a really educated answer. A really good answer about how a specific community works in the game or what the storytelling is or what the motives of that particular game developer had. And it blows my mind how smart the kids are about what they're consuming, like the narratives that go into these games and stuff and the things that the reasons that they're really interested in a specific game are the same reasons that you might be interested in the Raptors playoff run, for instance, because the storyline is so gripping that it's pulling you into it. It's creating challenges. It's also giving you opportunities to spend your money, just like professional sports teams do. Um, So it's a very clever business and one that's not going away anytime soon. It's actually, I think, in that type of work that you've done, whether it's with with esports, you also have a piece that came out recently about the Raptors in-house chef yeah. and how they work. Uh, Favorite with, story to the year, probably. Uh, well, you know what? It's a story that I was professionally jealous of, <laughs> which is a compliment. It was a story that I wanted to tell for a while and never got around to it. And you did it so well. There's like, there's no point telling it now, but how they work with the sports science team in terms of 
almost you know, tricking athletes into eating eating better and, and and not eating the traditional things that they would. And I think from your industry in the newspaper business, that's the real suppose intrinsic advantage that you may now have because there are so many sports specific blogs. The NBA is a great example. Um, there's competitors like the athletic, which in some places is a bad word, but there's so many places where you can get analytical information, X's and O's. I think the newspaper is really the place where you can get those great human interest stories. Has the change in our business changed the way you cover a team like the Raptors? Well, I mean, for sure, because there's so few of us now. I mean, every newspaper used to have loads and loads of sports reporters and you'd travel all over the place. Like I can remember the 2012 Olympics, I guess, in London. What a huge group of us were sent there as reporters to cover it for, you know, three whole weeks. We're on the ground ahead of time. We're staying behind. Like we're really putting a lot of work into that. And now it's just not feasible for any newspaper to send big groups of a dozen reporters anymore. It's just, it's so rare now for that to happen. Budgets are being pinched everywhere to travel. Like there's very few people that can go on the road every single day with the Raptors now. Um, It's just so expensive. So you have to find different ways to cover them. So they might be gone on a West Coast trip for 10 days and you got to try to get your interviews ahead of time or get on the phone um, with other people or just look at the team in a different way. And that was an instance, you know, that story about the chef. Um, he was a person I could visit maybe while I think the team, I worked on that for a long time because I needed different facets. I needed to see him with players. I needed to talk about the the science and the nutrition of things. Um, I needed to get the color and I needed to be in the kitchen when players were there and when players were not there um, and really learn about what they were doing and why they were doing and how it kind of set them not a part because I'm, I know a lot of teams are doing in the NBA, but certainly in the very upper echelon of of uh, teams when it comes to caring about that sort of thing on the sports science side and the and the nutrition side to to cater to players and and make that stuff available to them. So yeah, you have to find different ways to get these stories, but it becomes harder and harder because NBA teams are so busy and they're traveling and the media time is really kind of small. Like you don't want to have demands on your players. If you're really thinking about your players' health and well-being, you're also trying to to limit um, their exposure while at the same time, make, you know, promoting them and making them seem accessible to the fans and to the media. So it's a tightrope all the time to try to access, get your players out there, but also keep them protected and well-rested. So we wrestle with that all the time as media members. The other thing you may or may not wrestle with, hopefully not as much anymore, is your gender, your sex. And we were having this conversation in March, Women's History Month, and I, I wonder how much, as we talk about things changing in the media, how much it's changed in terms of the number of women you see with you on Press Row. You talked about Lori Ewing yeah. not being with you in the playoffs a couple of years, and or the way you're received and, and treated by, by the organization and, and really the athletes. I think the NBA is maybe the most progressive that I cover. And I think a How lot so? of... How does that manifest um, itself? I, I see a lot of women reporters. I feel like female colleagues in basketball are so much more... Like I see so many more there than I do in most other sports I cover. Tennis is different too, but you've got men and women in tennis. So I think that is a little different... And then when I cover women's sports, I see a lot more women there. But if I'm covering men's sports, I think the NBA probably has lots of women. There's 
lots and lots of women that work in the Raptors building as well, right? They're very represented there in very top jobs um, within the Raptors organization. So there's a, there's a big female presence within that organization. And you see it a lot with teams coming in too. You see a lot of um, on sports science teams in communication staff, you do see lots um, represented within the teams as well. And like really well-known around the league women covering it, um, whether it's broadcasters, writers, tons of great writers. More so, like, I've been covering sports since I was, like, more than 20 years, I guess, now, right? Since I was a student um, at Carleton, and I was doing it there. And I, even when I was in Michigan, there was lots of female role models I had there. So there was lots of women around, and they're still around in that market, too. There's not a lot of occasions where I'm the only women, woman anymore, and that used to be the case in lots of places. But I do find there's more women everywhere I am now. And I, I can't think of too many. People always say, what are the instances where you've been mistreated? Or I can't think of too many. And that's a good thing. <laughs> if you feel like you belong, you belong. Like there's no one telling you you can't go into locker rooms. There's no one telling you that you get different things than the male reporters do. I don't know. It's, I sometimes wonder if a certain a coach or other people feel the same answering the questions of a woman. So that's a question maybe for them, I guess. But I haven't had any like too much evidence to think that they're answering my question any differently necessarily. Sometimes a little bit more in a polite tone, I will say. Um, and I've had instances where a couple of years ago I asked to spend some time with Luis Scola's kids because they were always around the team. And I got the sense from making that request that he felt a little more comfortable saying, cool, it's a woman, she's a mom. Like, I think that was part of the ask a little bit. Um, and he felt comfortable, because I think at first he was like, a reporter wants to spend time with my kids. Uh, no. And then, oh, it's a mom who has kids. Oh, maybe. So maybe in some cases it has opened a door for me. I wanted to do a story on kids in the NBA. And if a man had asked, I'm sure maybe he would have said yes to that too, but um, so in some cases it has benefited me as well, I think. There's, in any kind of minority group, when there's few opportunities, there's a a sense of a crabs in the bucket mentality. Well, there's only so many roles, so many opportunities, so they don't necessarily collaborate. And in fact, the women covering basketball specifically, but even if you broader term sports in general in Canada, I haven't gotten that sense, which is great. The other area where I haven't got that sense at all is female athletes. They're so supportive of each other in this country. And more times than not, they are much more high achieving than the men are in this country. One of my favorite moments of sports in this year was watching the U Sports Championships, uh, the female championships, which you covered, and seeing Kia Nurse cheering for Mac as if she was on the team. And she played high school with a lot of those girls, but she's one of the best female basketball players in the world. She could have been anywhere else. Uh, what was that scene for you like to observe? I had a lot of fun covering the women's youth sports championships here. I played hockey in what was the CIAU, I guess they used to call it back then. I don't know. It's morphed in so many ways. And I was just like so impressed with where it's come for female athletes in Canadian universities from when I was playing in 1998. So different. So, so different in such a good way. So that was one 
you know, impression. And then to see several members of Canada's national team sitting courtside at that game, cheering, signing autographs for little girls, which was probably uh, my favorite part of it, that these girls were going over and asking for autographs and, and just chatting and wanting to talk to them, to these Olympic players. The kids had their jerseys on too, and I'm seeing that more and more in women's sports. I saw it at the Clarkson Cup yesterday as well. More and more women saying, okay, we're kind of having a moment here. Let's do what we can to support each other. I, I remember interviewing the uh, commissioner of the WNBA last year, and she had quoted Madeline Albright when she told me this, but I absolutely loved it, and it stuck with me. She said that Madeline Albright told her one time, there's a special place in hell for women that don't support other women. And it's really stuck with me, and I, and I feel like I've seen it really like in action over the last couple of years as women's pro sports really try to build and women's university sports and Olympic sports. But that was a standout example of it. And I, I'm glad you saw it too, that the, you know, the, the national team is there watching a university level. And actually at the Clarkson Cup yesterday, I saw on the, they honored the university champions at the game as well. They called them out, I think, on the broadcast for Guelph that had won their championship. So they, they're looking down, right? They're looking down the next level and looking at the girls there and saying, you can come up here. We're watching you too. You might be watching us, but we're also watching you. And lastly, and thank you so much for, for spending the time. I don't want to take you from the actual work you have to do of covering <laughs> all of these teams that you do. You mentioned WNBA. And for a while, I've thought, you know, we're such a progressive country. The Raptors specifically in the NBA, in more broader terms, have been relative to other leagues. There's still lots of work to do, but so good in terms of women. But yet there's no WNBA team in this, forget about the city, in this country. Allyship is important, and you mentioned women supporting other women. There was a tweet that went viral of a man wearing a Toronto Furies jersey going to the game. Yesterday, I think I saw that, that. yeah. And, And how important it was for a man to be on board. I say all that to say, how do we get this conversation to a place where it's a no-brainer that there's a WNBA team in this country? Is it men consuming female sports and, and showing that it is an important piece of the sports conversation? Is it more women being um, invested to not just see female athletes, but go and watch them and, and use their disposable income as women generally make the decisions around disposable income in most households. How do we get this conversation further so that people aren't talking about it as if it's charity, that they're talking about it as if it's an entertainment value proposition like any other sport? Yeah, you're 100% right. Like We do need men watching it, and we need for men to watch it, and women to watch it, not with the caveat of, I'm going to see because this is a novel thing, or this is, I should support women, so I'm going to go. Go because you're interested in watching that those athletes or that athlete compete. In the same way that, you know, something like, I saw a number the other day, something like 490,000 Canadians watched Bianca Andreescu play to that Indian Wells title last week. I don't think those people were saying, it would just be a nice thing if I went online and showed my support for Bianca. I think they were like, I want to see what this, this woman is made of. I want to find out. I want to watch her win a championship. That's why people need to watch women's sports. The same way they watch Canada versus the U.S. in women's hockey. You want to see who's going to win that game. You want to see the skill level. You want to watch that. You want to see how a Canadian women's basketball team performs in the Olympics. 
you want to watch them because they're it's best on best. You're not watching because it's it would be a nice thing to do. Like you said, it would be a nice thing to take your daughter to. It would be a nice way to show your daughter that she can do whatever she wants. Show her that it's really interesting and really great and it's worth buying a ticket. It's not just nice if you get given some free tickets. Pay your way in and go. And I think other leagues need to support each other too, but also the corporate world is going to have to jump in on it. And I think they will because what corporate company doesn't want to be shown to be supporting women? And media coverage, we all need to. It can't just be the one token female reporter on your staff who's going out and covering the Clarkson Cup or like it was a lot of women there yesterday covering the Clarkson Cup and women's hockey in general. There's some men there, but we need across the board men and women need to cover men's and women's sports, I think. Well said. Well, as they say, a tree that falls in the forest like, does it make a sound like you've made a sound about all of these issues and covered all these female athletes to broaden the conversation for us for a long time. So thank you for that. And thank you for taking the time having this conversation. Thanks for having me. So that's it for us in this very busy edition. That's because the sports calendar right now is super busy. Make sure you're following Rachel Brady because she's covering not just the Raptors. She's covering it all. Give her a follow on Twitter at rbradyglobe. Also follow Tyler Ennis. Thanks for coming through. My guy at Tyler Ennis. I am at Donovan Bennett. You know the man producing this is Emil Delich at Aman Delich. And this is the best time of the year for sports because there is so much stuff to talk about whether it's the nba the rest of the regular season playoffs and that schedule coming out soon baseball season is starting up and make sure you listen and subscribe to at the letters because those guys have been killing it recently and obviously the Premier league is coming down to the final weeks who's gonna finish in the top four who's gonna win the league finally we have a league race that is interesting exciting you can find all of that content not just on sportsnet.ca but on Sportsnet now. The next couple weekends from this weekend to literally the end of May, I'm not making any social plans because I'm not really sure what I'm going to want to watch. But whatever I end up watching, it's probably going to be on Sportsnet now because I'm going to have to use my tablet when I'm out and about in the city getting scores. Or if I'm at home, I'm going to have one game on the TV, fire another one up on the computer. Sportsnet now allows you to stream all of the crazy sports content wherever you are, anytime. That's why you need to get it. Thank you for getting this. This podcast, we appreciate the likes, the favorites, the subscribes, and the tweets. All of that makes this worthwhile. So thank you for listening once again. Sportsnet.